0: Hey, welcome back to The Pod Crashed. Today we're telling the story of Manx 2, flight 7100. Thanks for listening. Casey? Mama? Hi. Here we go. We did it. Here we go. Oh, It's working. Now it's working. Welcome back, Mama. Oh, thank you. Hi everybody out there in podcast land. <laughs> hello, darling friends, and hello little mama. Is uh is today the day you share your name or shall you remain my sweet mama only? Oh, my name is Karen. Okay. There you go. So, but you can all call her my mom as people do. Casey's <laughs> Casey's mom. But yeah, so hi little mama. Um hi. Do you when I if I say the word manx m a n x does that word mean anything to you? I think that it reminds.
1: <laughs> I'm not sure, but it, for some reason, I I think of uh, Mike Myers and the spy who, or oh. you know, one of those. I think he I think he calls one of his love objects that, but I don't know what. Oh. That.
0: I don't, maybe he does, or maybe Minx. I don't, I haven't seen those movies, but um, like uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. No, no, I don't know. But uh, so Manx, M A N X, can refer to a few things. So it can refer to, you know, those cats with stubby little tails? Yeah. That's a Manx cat. Uh, and Manx is also a word that refers to the people and language of the Isle of Man. I don't think it's just i don't think manx the language is only spoken there but maybe it is someone could educate me but it means having to do like manx is like having to do with the isle of man uh the i think people are like aware of welsh and gaelic and like different languages that are unique to um that region of the world but uh manx is another uh wild language uh, like Welsh, of the British Isles, and uh, it refers to people who live on the Isle of Man. Um, and if you want to, Manx, I don't think it's spoken. I think it's um, spoken, spoken rather, by significantly fewer people than Welsh. Um, it's, like, a pretty, like, one of the more rare native languages of that area. Um, oh. But it sounds wild if you go on youtube and listen to people speaking manx if somebody out here knows any words in manx it sounds wild just like just like well
1: yeah oh boy yeah yeah
0: Yeah. i can i can
1: imagine i can't wait to go on youtube and listen
0: yeah yeah it's fun um if i wasn't recording this three hours before it's supposed to go up i would might insert some manx words into this but you'll have to look it up on your own folks (laughs) Yeah, the Isle of Man is uh, one of the British Isles. Now about 800,000 people live there in that range. So it's actually, it's it's a small island and 800,000 people sounds like a lot. Um, but it's, it's uh, you know, uh, has its unique culture, like um, any of the, you know, parts of the world that have been populated for a long period of time and um so just like islands around the world uh they desire to have, uh, be able to hop on a plane and go to other places, right? And people want to go visit them. Um, but because it's an Island and there's not that many people on it, uh, it can be tricky to actually get carriers to care enough about sending a plane there, right? It's, it's hard to make it profitable to Mm -hmm. have a plane fly there. So, um, there have been a lot of, like small kind of pop-up airlines that have tried to uh, work in that market. And for a while in the early 2000s, one of the airlines or the airline, I guess, that was filling that market was Manx 2. So today we're telling the story of uh, Manx 27100. So uh, Manx 2 is not... Really, an airline. They're what's called a virtual airline. So, Manx 2 doesn't hire any pilots or crew. Manx 2 doesn't own any planes, right? What they do is they contract everything out. So they contract their aircraft, they contract their pilots. They, uh, If they had any flight attendants, they would contract them out, right? So this is like a cheap, cheap, cheap airline flying small aircraft that they don't own with pilots who they don't employ out of, uh, around a particular region of the world, right? Uh, yeah, kind of Lucy Goosey. Uh, Lucy Goosey, indeed. Exactly. So they, uh, there's like a long chain. So the the aircraft uh, that they that they contracted were actually not even owned by the people who they contracted them from, nor the people who they contracted them from. These aircraft were owned by a bank in Spain, who contracted them out to a uh, airline in Spain who contracted them out to another airline who contracted them out to Manx too. So there's just a long line of not owning this plane. Right. Uh, Meanwhile, the uh, the pilots are, are also subcontracted uh, and they're subcontracted from different airlines, different subcontractors. So they like the the pilots have their own employers and their own operating procedures that won't even match the pilot who's sitting next to them in the plane. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So loosey goosey indeed. So uh, <laughs> the on the flight today, the plane that the pilots were flying was is called a Fairchild Metro Three. So that's a, a small aircraft. I I looked. Uh, Around And I am pretty sure the seating configuration for this particular aircraft uh, was set at 18 people. Uh, I don't know. I can't confirm that, but you get the idea. It's a small plane. You might remember there was a handful of planes that flew out of Rochester that only had one flight attendant. And that's because those aircraft only sat 50 people. So 50 or fewer, Delta only uses one. This is like their operating procedure. Delta only uses one flight attendant. If the aircraft seats 50 or more, not if there's 50 or more people on it, but if the aircraft can seat more than 50 people, then they have two flight attendants on and on up. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, Manx 2 says, why bother with flight attendants at all? Let's just skip it. The pilots can do it. So the pilots who are subcontracted out and don't work for the same airline, they do the safety briefing and everything. Everything flight attendants do, the pilots do on board the plane, right? So obviously there's no service or anything, right? There's no in-flight service or whatever, but... Say la vie. So, uh, and this is in 2011. I don't think I saw the date yet. This is in 2011. This isn't oh in my the God. 60s. Yeah, I really buried the lead on that. This is recent. This isn't 1960, like, loosey-goosey. This is 2011. So, wow. yeah. And uh, they, but not only that, so, again, back to this idea that this is a hard market to make profitable, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, They fly passengers during the day and at night they fly cargo, right? But this isn't some huge plane with a huge belly that can hold a bunch of cargo. This is a teeny baby plane, right? So Mm. they literally every single day would have, uh, they would remove the seats at the end of the day, right? Remove the seats, fill the Mm -hmm. plane with cargo, fly cargo around, and then in the morning put the seats Back on and have the passengers fly during the day, and then at the end of the day wow. take the seats down. So like, wow. Uh, at the uh, school I went to when I was very little, uh the the it was like a one room schoolhouse. You remember? And uh, it was a church on Sunday, and then during yep. the week it was our school. So right. every Friday uh, afternoon we would do teardown, where we would you know put all the desks away, put them out in the barn in the back and then uh set it up to be a church and then the church on sunday after church they would tear down like the chairs and everything and put the desks back for us Mm -hmm. and uh so it reminds me of that just like every single day there's like tear down and put back up right
1: Mm -hmm. yeah
0: and again this is a loosey-goosey cheapy airline right so the pilots would very often have to be the ones to install the seats before flying the plane Mm -hmm. and the pilots would sometimes be the ones to load the bags so it's just like the pilots are are everything it's basically somebody noticed that like well there's two pilots surely we can't let them get off so easy (laughs) just flying Mm -hmm. the plane but right so this is manx too
1: right this is this is wow
0: yeah that's really different very different very,
1: very different. It's very cost-saving but i wonder um about the quality of the whole thing
0: right right exactly so uh, and i just think i mean that's a lot for the pilots to be running around doing right like that's just a that's very effortful so that that's what we're dealing with on this day so right. on february 10th 2011, uh, Manx 27100 uh, is starting out uh, at Belfast International Airport. Bigger airport, not a huge airport. So Belfast International Airport uh, is where they put the seats back on the plane. And then the pilots hop it over to the regional airport in Belfast. So just a little tiny like boop boop over to, you know, probably probably like no time at all uh, and that's where they pick up passengers at the mm-hmm. regional airport mm-hmm. so on this day they pick up 10 passengers so there's 12 people total on the plane two pilots 10 people mm-hmm. or 10 people it's horrible 10 passengers two two pilots <laughs> who are very much humans and then 10 passengers uh <laughs> our pilots on this flight are uh geordie who's the captain. He's from Barcelona. He's 31. And the first officer is Andrew, who's English and 27 years old. Uh, Jordi has been a captain for four days. Whoa. Four days. Jordi has 1,800 total flight hours, which is Not a ton of experience. It's much more than I have. It's not a ton of experience, right? To be a captain. Uh, Andrew has 539 hours. These are young guys. They're no Carlos at this stage. I mean, God bless, you know, these pilots certainly, but they haven't had the same level of experience as our darling Carlos had at their age. And uh, like they're they're fresh pilots, right? They're young.
1: Uh, Early
0: on in their career, uh, but they are very green, we'll say, to have this level of responsibility. So uh, they have, so a little bit of, again, back to this. So uh, the ILS is the instrument landing system. what that means is if uh, you have an ILS approach, it means that the pilots are landing using their instruments rather than their eyes. Right. Mm -hmm. So instead of being able to see the runway and just line it up and land the way that we would drive a car, they have to uh, they have to depend on their instruments. So Mm -hmm. uh, in their communication with the uh, air traffic control, uh, it's how pilots land and take off when there's dense fog, for example, uh, or severe weather. And uh, at night, blah, blah, blah. So Mm -hmm. the um, there's different categories of ILS approach, uh, right? There's an, a, a category one is the uh, lowest level, right? So uh, our boys, Jordy and Andrew are approved, right? They've, they've been approved to do category one ILS approaches, which means that they need at least 500 meters. So around 1,800, 1,700 feet of uh, visibility in order to land and take off Um, category two would be the next level. And neither of them are approached or or, neither of them are approved for a category two, meaning uh, that neither of them are supposed to be flying the plane and landing it. If they can't see at least 500 meters in front of them with their own two eyes.
1: Right.
0: Uh, The Gotcha. Flight was delayed a little bit because the pilots had to do all of this running around and fixing the plane and loading the bags, literally physically putting the bags on the plane, doing the whole thing by themselves. Uh, they had to do the like safety checks. They had to give the safety speech to the passengers, all of this. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of the passengers who do fly on this uh, uh, on Manx 2 are uh, businessmen, right? Like that would be a, a common thing reason why somebody would do this they're flying again from belfast and they're on their way to cork so uh cork is in the republic of ireland uh and i am a big fan of cork we got to um i had the privilege of yeah working near there is that where your great grandma is from i think so Yeah. yeah but i think i remember the um beautiful stone
1: uh farmhouse that you stayed at yeah That That was,
0: that one was outside of, uh, limerick. Oh, the one we worked out immediately before that farm was in, uh, Cork. So, or outside of, I mean, every, we didn't, everything we do is outside of the city itself, but yeah. So Cork airport is not some big fancy airport, but it's nice. You know, it's a, it's a real airport uh Mm -hmm. so they the pilots are have put the seats on the plane they've put the people on the plane they've put the bags on the plane and they uh have done all of the duties that a flight attendant would do all the safety duties right Mm -hmm. they uh get their weather information from uh, Malaga so in this long chain of responsibility um whoever sent is responsible for sending them the uh the flight information uh the weather information all of that is in Malaga uh Spain and so they get that information and it says that the visibility in Cork is poor that there's a heavy dense fog so again this is Ireland is a foggy place, right? It's just a foggy, foggy place, just like the UK, just like, I guess, that whole region, right? It's Mm -hmm. never that cold and it's uh, very damp. So it's going to be super, super foggy. Uh, And this is February. So this is the foggiest of foggy times, right? Uh, And there's dense, dense, dense fog in Cork. And the visibility is expected to be... Less than 500 meters, which is where they are supposed to uh, not fly. But they go for it. So they hop in their seats after doing all, after setting up the seats for the passengers, they hop into their seats in the cockpit and they take off on their way to Cork. So. Uh Uh-oh. At eight ten, they depart Belfast in the morning. Uh, they're expecting three hundred meters of visibility. So it's not like they were a little bit under the five hundred feet. They're way under the five hundred feet. They're expecting three hundred feet of visibility. We have our dear captain, who has been a captain for four days. We have our sweet Andrew. He is has you know five 500- hundred. And change hours of flight time. Neither of them are meant to fly in these conditions. They take off. And I don't imagine that. I don't. It's impossible to know how. They what they believe the repercussions might be of saying, hey, we're not allowed to do this, right? Like, I don't know if they were just like, we got this, or if they didn't want to get in trouble or whatever it was, but whatever it was, they took off. And uh, Ireland is not very big, right? And so they take off a little after 8.10, and at 8.48 a.m., they contact Cork, because they're getting ready to land. Uh, Cork says, yeah, there's crazy fog. It's super, super foggy. um, And we're approved for category two ILS approach, meaning that, again, Cork tells them explicitly, the minimum visibility is not met, that you're, you are not approved to land here. They don't know that they don't know anything about the pilots, obviously. But they say, you know, that, Uh, We're doing Category 2 ILS approaches, meaning that the visibility is under 500 meters, which is what our boys are approved for. Mm -hmm. They uh, still come in. They, uh, at 9 a.m., they're handed off to uh, the actual tower for landing. Uh, They start to come in for the landing. So here's another little Piece of plane information. So we've talked about decision speed before. I don't know if these are going to sound like familiar phrases. And okay. uh, decision height is uh, two hundred feet above the ground. So it, at before you get to two hundred feet, where you must decide uh, to abort the take abort the landing. Boy, my brain. <laughs> this is fever, Casey. Okay, so decision height. Is 200 feet when a pilot is coming in for a landing Mm
1: -hmm.
0: before they reach 200 feet they need to decide whether or not they're going to actually land or if they're Mm -hmm. going to abort the landing Mm -hmm. so anytime they're below 200 feet the idea is by then you really just got to try to land right Mm -hmm. so At 101 feet in altitude, 101 feet above the ground, our boys realize that they're not seeing the runway. They can't see it. They don't know if they're lined up properly. They don't know where they are. And so they abort the the landing at 101 feet. So half of decision height. And they successfully go around. They ascend away from the ground. They... Uh, go back around. They want to attempt another landing. Uh, The pilots ask if they can land uh, coming from the other direction, basically. They ask if instead of landing, going, I think it was from um, south to north, they ask if they can land from north to south because they're hoping that the where the sun is in the sky that it'll cast the, it'll be more visible they're hoping it'll improve the visibility they'll be able to see it more clearly so court gives them permission to go around and try to land from the other direction so they go around they get lined up uh the visibility is still incredibly low they're they cannot see they are not adequately cha- trained to uh land under these circumstances, they get to ninety-one feet above the ground and realize that they can't see the runway. They can't do it, and they go around at ninety-one feet, which is extremely close to the ground to take yeah. off to try to take off again. Uh, they, when they this time, when they ascend back to altitude, they uh, ask if they can have the weather. They ask, they're. I don't know, again, what their mental state is, but they say, listen, can we can we go into a holding pattern for like 15, 20 minutes so that, you know, we'll see if the weather changes at all. We'll see if the fog starts to roll out. If visibility improves, can you put us in a holding pattern? Cork says, of course. And so they put them in a holding pattern. And while they're in the holding pattern, they ask for the weather at Shannon and Waterford. And uh, Cork tells them the weather's even worse at those places. This is crazy fog, right? So the the fog is even more blinding in Shannon and Waterford. But they say,, uh, Cary airport is, actually looks okay. Do you want to go to Kerry? And uh, eh, they don't they don't they they don't say yes. They uh, decide, Um, that they're going to try to hold off and see if the visibility improves where they are. And uh, at 9.33, the tower says, uh, hey, the visibility is a little bit better. Do you want to try again? Uh, In fact, the visibility was better, but barely better and still way under that 500 meter line. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they decide like, yeah, okay, Mm -hmm. so let's go for it. So they come back to the airport circle over above the airport uh and they're preparing to try to land again they uh as they're preparing so now they put the gear down they have their flaps extended uh, for some reason Jordy, the captain right uh, so A- Andrew's flying the plane and for some reason Jordy uh says Uh, I took control of the power. Okay. And Andrew says, "Uh, yeah, no problem. That's fine. Which is very strange. So if you imagine that you're driving and uh, your friend sitting next to you said like, you just handle steering. I'm going to power the, the I'm going to be in charge of the gas and the brakes. Like I'm going to do that. And you, you just steer not super safe right like that's you you kind of need your like those things to be integrated you need to be like one person one body needs to be handling speed uh and steering right but for whatever reason um Geordi took control of the uh power uh and so as they're getting closer They're lined up with the runway. They dip below the decision height. As they're coming in, suddenly the plane banks to the left, meaning that the left wing is pointing uh, down and the right wing is pointing up. So the plane is at an angle. The pilots don't know what's going on, so they rev the engines up for uh, another go-around. They're going to reject the landing. But when they rev the engines up, for some reason the plane banks hard to the right so hard that the plane is moving toward being inverted the right wing points straight down at the ground the left wing is pointing straight up so the plane is at 90 degrees uh if you if you imagine how a plane stays in the air if it's at 90 degrees it just turns into a knife basically that can just cut right down and they were already so 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 close to the ground again they were below that decision height already so the plane banks to the right the right wing is pointed straight down at the ground they very rapidly lose the altitude that they had and the right wing hits the runway scrapes the runway the nose of the plane Tips forward, hits the ground, the plane flips over and slides off the runway. Mm. So there were 12 people on board. Both of the pilots were killed, and four of the passengers. Mm. So half of the people on board lived and half of the people on board died. And we don't know why that
1: any of that happened. We don't know um, like what we don't have any information on the so, um, strange maneuvers and why Yeah,
0: we we do. We do. So so things like why did uh, why was Jordy handling the power? That's unfortunately not knowable because he died. Um, but the there so as I'm sure will be a surprise to no one. The maintenance on these planes was terrible, 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 um, terrible in different ways. Sometimes they would just say they did maintenance they didn't do. Sometimes they would uh, just not do it and not say they did it. Um, The maintenance was erratic, uh, unreliable. For some reason, if you again imagine those last moments of the flight. So first there was a bank to the left. Mm -hmm. uh, And the left engine, at the same moment that that was happening, for some reason the left engine was that negative thrust? So basically the left engine was uh, below idle. It was turned all the way down. So mm-hmm. we've talked about ways that um, differential thrust has saved lives, right? It can allow passengers or it can allow pilots to regain control of a plane to have one engine uh, fire like uh, more than the other. Uh, or have, you know, alternate the thrust on either side of the plane. Um, but in this case, when the, the power dipped down so low on the left wing, the power remained stable on the right wing, and so the plane tilted up because the right wing had power and the left wing didn't. Uh, it appears that there was a faulty sensor, that when the that that when it identified that that left engine had gone down to idle it revved the left engine at the same moment that the pilots were already revving both engines to try to take off again Mm -hmm. and where almost certainly uh andrew who wasn't in control of the power and didn't know why the plane had banked to the left uh made a corrective maneuver trying to level the plane back out. So the sensor Mm -hmm. making the faulty sensor, making the left engine rev, the power that both pilots intentionally added to try to go around and the corrective maneuver to the right that Andrew made trying to correct the bank caused the plane to tip so wildly to the right uh, while the engines sped up Uh, and as soon as the plane they were the reason why decision height is a thing right the reason why after a certain point uh pilots are supposed to just land right or the reason why pilots fly so high right is because that gives you time right like there are stories Mm -hmm. we've told stories about planes that were in were inverted in the sky and the pilots were able to regain control because when they inverted, they were at, you know, 39,000 feet. So there's a lot of time between when the problem happens and the actual hitting the ground, right? So in this yeah. case, they were, they were, I mean, they were, he, they crashed on the runway. So at this point, they were so, so close to the ground that as soon as the plane was was turned all the way to the right, it just sliced straight down to the ground and uh. crashed. Uh. So the question of who's at fault is complex because everybody involved has a claim to the idea that it's not their fault, right? So Manx too said, all we do is sell tickets. We don't employ anybody. We don't own any planes. We don't have operating procedures for pilots. Mm -hmm. We don't train pilots. All we do is sell tickets, so it can't be our fault. Uh, And the pilots are are employed by two different companies right and they don't they're like well we don't own the plane and we don't do the maintenance for the plane and the people who own the plane who actually own the plane it's subcontracted it's subcontracted twice so the subcontractors say, well, it's not our plane and then on and on. So there's this like extreme decentralization to this extent, right? Where nobody's mm-hmm. in a position to like actually take responsibility or to be responsible. It mm-hmm. makes it very hard to answer that question. And okay. really it that's exactly what the problem was, right? The problem was, it was, they they shouldn't have been flying first place two pilots with such low experience shouldn't have been alone flying a plane and Jordy, God bless him. I I am sure he would have been an amazing pilot and had an amazing career if he'd survived, but he wasn't, he didn't really have the experience to be the captain of another pilot who also had very little experience and that it's, very frustrating, and uh, the Irish government criticized uh, Manx Two for uh, like they they really went hard on like we have no responsibility here. They really 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 they didn't call families, they didn't do anything, they didn't contact survivors. They just they just said all we do is sell tickets, wow. and incredibly, uh, they survived as a non-airline airline until 2017. So they actually had six more years of this after this crash. In 2017, the reason why they had to stop operating is because they had hopped from contractor to contractor to contractor to contractor. And every single contractor had fired them, had dissolved the contract, and they literally used everybody up. So there was just nobody left who would contract planes or pilots to them. So they just burned through everybody. And then, and, and the thing is, is that like who actually loses, right? People on the Isle of Man, right? Like who actually misses out, who actually loses a service that I'm sure they benefited from, extremely I mean if you live on an island you depend on that ability right to to fly out I'm sure there are boats and stuff but so that is the sad story of Manx to flight 7100 My dear sweet mother's phone died at this moment, and she had to go and get another phone. So, if the recording quality sounds a little bit different, that's why. Now, on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake Hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Tao and Adria Arjona. Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R.
1: So sad. I'm just thinking that it's hard to I guess it's a little hard to wrap my mind around why that lasted so long in 2011 with um, all that we know about Checklists mm-hmm. and what we've learned over, over the years about aviation and avoiding yeah. uh, snafus like that, right? Uh, right.
0: I think it is that decentralization, right, where it the. I, I don't, maybe, I, I guess I'm just giving my opinion, but it, I think that that, I, I, I spent a lot of time kind of being horrified by how afraid we all are of getting in trouble. Like how many things that should never happen happen just because people are afraid of getting in trouble. Like the... You want to think and you want it to be the case that pilots can say, oh, I can't fly like these uh, the visibility is below my minimums. Right. And I that happened. I, I know I've said this story on the show before, but I worked there was like a disaster day at the airport where I. Um, there was crazy, crazy fog that, I, I don't even know how this is possible, but it ran all the way from where we were in Buffalo and probably beyond Buffalo to the east, all the way to Detroit. And there was a flight that we had that was delayed because the first officer wasn't able to fly in that low visibility. So she wasn't approved to fly When the visibility was that low and she was just not, she wasn't ashamed. She didn't question it. She wasn't like, yeah, I'm so sorry. She wasn't, she was totally just like, oh no, I can't fly in this because I, it's below my visibility minimums and passengers were mad passengers are like well the captain can fly like why can't you know whatever whatever and she's a woman pilot and there's which is less than one percent of all pilots anyway and people are already jerks about it right and she was just nothing just totally calm. And I. she's always stood on my mind because she didn't have anything to be ashamed of. She shouldn't be ashamed that she's young and early in her career and that she hasn't been approved for that yet. That's not something to be ashamed of. And she wasn't mm-hmm. ashamed of it. And that's mm-hmm. how you want it to be because that's what keeps people safe. But again, mm-hmm. I don't know if, you know, it seems like this is already like a tenuous employment situation, right? Where I, I don't know. I don't know. And there's fog all the time. I mean, these are foggy areas. So I don't imagine for a second that this was an outlier. And I think that's probably part of it. Like, Ireland's a foggy place. The Isle of Man, if I had to put money on it, I would bet it's pretty foggy, right? I Mm. imagine that they probably do this a lot. And most of the time, it's fine. And then this time, it wasn't. Right.
1: It's. um, I'm thinking that they didn't have... It wasn't a cohesive um lots of policies you know they kind of were off on their own in a way it it sounds like i don't know yeah sure. but yeah. you know maybe be picking up a little extra money doing the side job kind of thing um well, and yeah maybe i don't know yeah
0: or trying to get their foot in the door you know what i mean like trying to you know maybe they want to fly for um, you know, one of the big legacy airlines. I mean, I don't, these are real people who had goals and dreams and, you know, things that they wanted to do. And so I talked to a lot of people who worked for like, like, you know, God bless GoJet. They're one of the, uh, regional carriers or whatever that Delta contracts. And they have some of the, they suffer for it i guess i'll leave it at that but uh most of them yeah not all of them but a lot of them were doing that because they were trying to put their dues in so that they could eventually work for delta or american airlines or one of the you know legacy carriers so Mm -hmm. uh, people have that idea there's that idea out there that well you have to work terrible crappy jobs when you're young because that's how you like Mm -hmm. make your way up Right, and I think that the mindset that that creates is like, I can't complain about this, or I can't say when something is wrong.
1: Yeah, that could happen, or what kind of pressure there was from you know, um, maybe the maybe the um, the passengers, like you said, they don't want to be delayed, they don't want their flight canceled, they've got business to run and they want to get going. And oh, let's just go, you know, if there wasn't any. And there wasn't anything that was um, really uh, an expectation of you need not do that. Like, why is that information given to you if you're not going to use it? The information of um, the 500, you know, whatever the ILS levels. um, uh, It's interesting because there's so many checks and checklists in aviation that I've learned through you and Mariah's podcast podcast that makes me wonder like um so where was that where was the check there when they give you that information and then it seems like you would be like yes I'm okay to do that level or no I'm not or it would be an opportunity to bring that to light
0: right right and I I one of the so one of the pilot uh, passengers rather, who survived, um, there's so the Smithsonian um, makes a lot of videos about aviation disasters. and um, they have an episode about this flight. And uh, one of the passengers who survived talks about how like pea soup fog is a norm. Right. And I, I Mm. I don't know this, but I think that has to be part of it. Well, I mean, we haven't, Mm -hmm. we're not, we haven't done this episode yet, but I think about the crash that happened in Buffalo and without giving too much away, the pilot, one of the pilots on that flight said like that she didn't have any experience flying in the winter. And she didn't feel confident flying in winter. And I think, and I think about people who would say, like, well, if you're flying in Buffalo, you better get used to it. Right. And that's kind of the attitude. Like, I can imagine people saying, if you work for an airline in the British Isles, you better get used to flying in fog. You know, like I can imagine that being because it just feels like a norm. Uh, that I, and again, I, I don't know that, but I imagine people saying like, well, I don't know what you think you're doing here. If you can't fly in fog, you know, and stuff like that. And
1: right. yeah, I don't know that kind of piecemeal um, throwing it together because the, you know, quote unquote, the show must go on. Like we gotta, right just gotta get somebody to fly this flight. How about, how about, uh, you know, this guy kind of like uh, a per diem flyer per diem fl- um, pilot that would be, you know, jump in and you expect them to be able to do it. And they, they say they can and, right. but you don't have the proper um, checks and balances so that, you know,
0: right. Oh, I didn't even talk about this, but there was even more issues. So the aircraft didn't have like autopilot. Like there was a lot of stuff. I didn't even mention that, but there's just a lot of ways where, there, a lot of the the things that could have helped them weren't in place. And then whether they didn't feel like they could say, no, I can't fly this, whether they felt like they should just do it, whether, whatever it is, they, they did it. And it, 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 I mean, when we, I, I wouldn't let you talk to me about it when we were figuring out the, um the, when your phone died but you were saying that yeah there's no doubt that pilot error is a factor here like th- yeah no doubt no doubt and and poor crew resource management right like the that's true the the geordi controlling the power while andrew was flying it d- doesn't make sense and it's not clear why that happened but again they who knows who Jordy, whoever Jordy actually works for, maybe that's something they do. Maybe they have something worked out where that's a norm where he flies, but it's not the norm for Andrew or whatever it is. And then somebody assigned them to this flight, right? Somebody, somebody put them on this flight together, which right off the bat isn't fair. And I don't think pilots show up and talk about how many flight hours they have right like pilots fly with different people all the time so they sitting there together in the cockpit in all likelihood wouldn't have known how inexperienced each of them were right and that is another factor i mean if you're both trying to like kind of you want to come off as confident probably right like you want to instill confidence you want to you know, you don't want to say like I've been a captain for four days, and I only, you know, I don't actually have enough hours to be a captain, right? That's probably not what you want to say. So, so for Andrew, when when Jordy said I'm gonna take control of the power, he went and just thought like, yeah, okay, sure, whatever, whatever you say, Captain, right? Because he, and maybe Jordy wasn't used to flying with people who are so inexperienced, and I, yeah, I don't know. There, the that's the other thing is that the nobody had their backs. And like you said, that sense of kind of being like that, you know, sense of being kind of on your own and you just got to like the show must go on. Like, I guess we got to. And they really had a whole day of flying. It was the first flight of the day. You know what I mean? They they wanted to just get to Cork so they could go on to their next flight. You know what I mean? And, and do their job because they're just at work, you know, sad. Yeah, yeah. it is sad. Do you have a fact, little mama?
1: So uh, my fact is a little bit silly considering the death of these folks on this plane. Half of them passed. Uh, But uh, when you first started talking and you were talking about the language of Manx, it's just wild. And the UK, I was thinking, oh, my fun fact is going to fit right in here. My random random fact is going to fit in. Research has been done on cows of the UK and because Aww. some farmers noticed hmm, I think my cows got an accent and they did what? <laughs> they did a research on it and they found out that the cows do have accents and they suggest, there's research suggests that they picked it up from their owners, from their farmers. What? <laughs> that spends a lot of time with them. <laughs>
0: what? That's amazing. <laughs> That's yeah. amazing. Yes. So they noticed it. So, so, cause uh, what's really interesting about the UK is that bit, vi- so, uh, So, obviously, people have lived there for thousands and thousands of years, right? And because of feudalism, right, the system was such that most people would literally never leave their village, right? So... Uh, like the Isle of Man like uh, has such a unique language because it's an island, right? So islands always have unique cultures and unique languages because they're so isolated, right? Just like people in mountains, right? You, If you live in a mountain, even though you're physically connected to the people around you, technically by land, they're inaccessible to you, right? So there's always like any enclave like that is going to have a really unique culture. Mm -hmm. But in the UK, even though... Uh, another village might be like a uh, day's walk away from you their accent could develop to be something totally different from yours because you would virtually never leave your village right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's why the UK has such incredibly distinct accents in like what to us in America it looks like this like tiny speck of land basically, right? No, we love, listen, David, all y'all in, in the UK, we love every last one of you. So, um, but, <laughs> but, but, but you, your accents are wild, right? Let's be real. <laughs> and, you know, much, much, much more diverse than for example, American accents, which obviously haven't had nearly as long to develop and we're not as isolated from one another. But um, so the fact that, yeah of course they would discover that in the uk because your cow the cows are isolated too right that's amazing (laughs) that's amazing Mm -hmm. go figure yeah um
1: farmer lloyd brown from glastonbury said i spend a lot of time with my ones and they definitely moo with a somerset drawl
0: oh my gosh that's so funny (laughs)
1: that's That's a quote
0: that's so funny they should, do a, they should do a research study on like cows, like the same breed of cows across different like areas, like different mm-hmm. countries rather with different languages. Mm-hmm. That's so yeah. interesting. But I guess yeah. in a lot of places, people don't get to spend as much time with their cows anymore. I wonder what, uh, so our dear listeners, so my great grandfather was a small scale dairy farmer. And so I want his cows must have had his accent. That's wow. so, Yeah. yeah. He,
1: he knew them all by name. Um, he knew them and, and named them. And yeah, he was close to them. So it does say that um, peer pressure was. Yeah.
0: That's so funny. <laughs>
1: peer pressure is a, is a um, factor that the, the more time they spend together with their farmer, the, the more likely they are to develop this accent. So That's that crazy. I know, right?
0: I wonder if that happens to, like, dogs and cats and stuff, too. It
1: does say that, yes.
0: Oh, it does? It says says dogs and cats. It does say Uh, that dogs...
1: um, Yes, I'm reading for... uh, Okay, it works the same as with dogs. The closer a farmer's bond is with his animals, the easier it is for them to pick up his accent. Mm.
0: That's wild. (laughs) And I believe that because, like, your little cat is... I think he... He seems the way he communicates seems uniquely bonded to the way you talk to him. <laughs> but yeah, that's so live, interesting. Uh... Oh, he loves you. Nobody, no cat has ever loved anyone the way that my mom's cat <laughs> loves her.
1: Oh my gosh, so, I love him too.
0: Yeah, it's good. Ah, <sighs> so that this has been such a weird week and a very. Um, different <laughs> recording sessions. So thank you so much for being along on this ride with me, Mama.
1: Oh, of course. I enjoy it every time. Yeah. Is it okay um, to ask about Mariah? On the, on yeah. Phone or you want to talk at, offline?
0: No, it's okay. Yeah. So our our darling friends will want to hear too. So um, Mariah uh, sends her love, of course. And thank you to all of you for um, your kind wishes Uh, she ought to, so Mariah might be back next week or might be back the week after, but you can definitely expect her, uh, we might do a trifecta with you and me, Mama, and then uh, we expect to have our darling Mariah back. Uh, So, I don't want to say not next episode, but I can say with more confidence that we'll have one more episode with Uh, everybody's favorite, Casey and Mama, and then uh, Mariah will be back. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So we will look forward to that. And we hope that all of you are enjoying these uh, little uh, episodes during this kind of bumpy, difficult time. And uh, oh, a uh, little side thing. So um, this flight, so thanks 2 um, 7100 is one that I've been wanting to do for a long time, but I didn't find it that easy to find information about it and uh, a channel on youtube disaster breakdown did a really good detailed episode about this flight Um, it's really excellent it goes into more detail about the like bizarre ownership contracting structure Um, I thought it was really really good and helpful Um, I really it helped out a lot making this obviously and um, and yeah he's got a cool channel so we always we love all of our buddies. I don't know anything about the person who makes Disaster Breakdown, but uh, we do love our YouTube friends. So, mm-hmm. yeah. But, super. So check that out. And um, if you want to email us, you can. Do you know what our email address is, Mom? Pop quiz.
1: Yes. The pod crashed at gmail.com. Good job.
0: And uh, people can find us on Instagram and TikTok. And uh, yeah, we'll look forward to talking to all of you next week. Love you, Mama. I love you, sweetheart.
1: Love all of you. Bye. Good night.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the podcast. We so hope you enjoyed it. I uh, promise, Mariah will be back soon enough. And in the meantime, you're welcome to reach out to us at thepodcrashed at gmail.com or message us on Instagram or TikTok. We love all of you and can't wait to chat more next week. Thanks for listening.